When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Slate Culture Gab Fest is brought to you by Bermuda Tourism. Whether it's biking the railway trail, cliff jumping into turquoise waters, or diving through the hull of one of 300 shipwrecks, you can experience true Bermuda fun in no time, just a two-hour flight from the East Coast. And by Audible.com, the Internet's leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. The Culture Fest is currently creating an Audible bucket list of books you need to read. Get one of those books free when you sign up for a 30-day free trial at audiblepodcast.com slash culturefest. The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gab Fest, the re-Stevening edition. It's Wednesday, June 11th, 2014. On today's show, Obvious Child is the new indie movie about a young woman who decides not to bring her pregnancy to term. And then, adults are buying so-called YA or young adult books in droves. Should we be embarrassed to read books designed and marketed to kids? And finally, Home Ec was once the bane of feminism. Could it now be its silver bullet? Joining me today is Slate's deputy editor, Julia Turner. Hello, Julia. Hi, Steve. You're back. I'm so re-Stevening you as I speak. We've been re-Stevened. Yay. You look re-Stevened. Uh, <laughs> you're Slate's deputy editor, and your name's Julia Turner. I said that, didn't I? Yeah, I think so. Oh, my God. I'm so good at this still. Uh, and Dana Stevens is the film critic of Slate. Do you feel re-Stevened? Fully re-Stevened. Did it take being re-Stevened to know what un-Stevened <laughs> or de-Stevened feels like? Or did you sense it while you were, was it a ghostly morning uh, while you were experiencing it? Stop fishing, Steve. We missed you. We're glad you're back. <laughs> Move it along. <laughs> Let's do a show. <laughs> All right. Before we do our first segment, can I make a, a Slate Plus pitch? You may. So Slate Plus, as you know, is our membership program at Slate. For five bucks a month or 50 bucks a year, you get all kinds of goodies, including ad-free versions of this podcast and special Slate Plus bonus segments. And today, after years of Greta Garboing, of cloaking himself in mystery and his book in mystery, Stephen Metcalf has agreed to let me and Dana ask him five questions about his book, which he has pledged to answer. Unpre-approved. Yeah. Questions. No, no, no question approval. This isn't some bullshit talk show. This is the real deal. So if you pony up for Slate Plus, you can get a sneak preview of what Steve's been working on on his leave and a whole host of other benefits you can read about at slate.com slash culture plus. All right. Onward, Steve. First topic. All right. Moving on. Obvious Child is a new indie movie from writer-director Gillian Robespierre. It stars Jenny Slate of Saturday Night Live as a young Brooklyn stand-up who discovers she's pregnant from a one-night stand and decides to have an abortion. Why don't we listen to a clip from the movie? Hi, Ryan. I don't know if you're getting my messages, but I really would need to I talk. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't hear the... I didn't... I... I don't care about the beep. <laughs> I am also sorry that you cannot get to the phone. Uh... Put on that suit and lend me that costume. Kate has HPV. Uh... 
HPV. The kind of HPV where you get warts on your stuff and um, ovarian cancer. There's a lot of other stuff I could say, but I'm a lady. And then she dies of cancer and you're stuck with the bill, so. I just wanted to apologize for the voicemail that I just left on your voicemail. And um, I also wanted to say, psych. <laughs> Have a great life. I'll be here with my normal HPV that one in four nice women have. And um, there will not be an apology message for this apology message. Goodbye. All right. Well, Dana, I uh, I just saw this movie. I haven't read a single review, including yours, but I'm very interested to know what you thought of it. What do you think of uh, Obvious Child? I'm a fan of this movie and of Jenny Slate. I was surprised by this movie because it had so much advanced publicity because of the subject matter. I had suspected that it would be something much more incendiary. I mean, I think that it's possible that its effects in the culture will be incendiary, but the movie itself surprised me by its kind of mildness and sweetness. It's, it's a pretty unassuming little comedy that doesn't take on any, any real political stance. Mm-hmm. But don't you think that that itself is uh, where the political weight of the movie is felt, that it didn't go in for large crossfire-like topical discussions and, in fact, uh, was matter-of-fact about the fact of abortion, which is why it's going to be, in some quarters, incendiary. I wonder if it will. I said in my review, I think this is going to reverberate like a shot across our national conversation about abortion. That has not happened in the week that it's been open, but it is opening across limited markets rather slowly. I think parts of the country, more red states, have probably not seen this movie yet, so mm-hmm. we'll yet we have yet to see how it will land in those states. But you're right. What's shocking, if anything, about this movie is how casual it is about the young woman, Donna Stern, the character that Jenny Slate plays, her choice to get an abortion. We'd never even see her make the decision, actually. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's there's not any scene of, of hand-wringing or brow-furrowing or consulting with her friends or family about whether to do it. It's a foregone conclusion that she's going to do it, and the questions become, is she going to tell the guy that got her pregnant about it? And, you know, other questions that have to do with the surrounding circumstances of the abortion, not whether to get one or not. Right, when to get it, how to get it, whether to get it on Valentine's Day or her mom's birthday, which are her two choices. But there's not any ambiguity about whether this is the right choice for her in her life. Okay, so Julia, we'll we'll dig into whether that makes this a more political or less political movie on and on. Um, but setting aside the topicality of it, it's not a topical movie overwhelmingly. It seems to me it's a slice of life and, and beautifully felt movie. Did you like it as a film? Well... I loved some of the performances in it, and particularly Jenny Slate's. And I should caveat here that Jenny Slate uh, went to high school with me, was in my sister's class, and I know her a little bit. Um, I haven't talked to her in years. But I was really, really impressed with her performance, which I thought showed incredible comedic range, which you may expect from her if you've seen her various bit parts around the comedy sphere since she sort of flamed out on Saturday Night Live. But also I thought the dramatic moments were really wonderful, the moment where she's super upset and overwrought and um, goes to her mom's house in the middle of the night to talk to her about everything that's going on moved me to tears. I thought it was really beautiful and well-acted and made me very excited about what Jenny Slate's going to do in the future. I think she's got a madcapness and a realness that are very fun on screen. I actually felt that the politics of the movie rendered it somewhat dramatically inert. Like the whole point of the movie seems very consciously to be a corrective, to make a movie about the fact that having an abortion is no big deal for a certain set of women in a certain place. And as a result, when she goes out to have the abortion, she faces no conflict. There's no inner conflict about whether to have it. When she talks to the people in her lives about it, they're unfailingly supportive. There's one moment with the Planned Parenthood doctor 
that, that was a bit more pointed that I liked where the doctor's like, I want to make sure you really understand your options and your plans. And she very firmly is like, yeah, I understand. I would like to schedule an abortion. And, and that seemed to dig a little bit at, you know, all these laws around you have to think about it and you have to look at the ultrasound and this and that and the other that, that you find in clinics across the land. But did you not find that it was slightly dramatically inert that everywhere she goes in the whole movie, she's greeted with support and open arms and like, yay, abortion? I mean, I get politically why that movie needs to exist because of so many other movies like Knocked Up, where it's just a foregone conclusion that this woman for whom an abortion would completely make sense isn't even considering having an abortion. Or Juno, where this, I think, more finely drawn character makes a specific decision to carry the baby to term and give it up for adoption rather than have an abortion. But still... I'm glad this movie exists, and yet I felt that its political rectitude became a dramatic weakness. I'm going to disagree with you because I don't think the movie is principally about her having the abortion, which is what I loved about it and what surprised me about it the most. I think it's about a woman of enormous potential and wit and charm whose life is not cohering and coming together for her in her late 20s. And at that moment, she gets pregnant, and some women might be tempted to anchor or center their life in having the baby. And for her, that's not an option. So it's not only this decorous decision not to build a movie out of topical flashpoints that attracted me to it. It's It was the depth of feeling around the predicament that this woman's life appears to be in in general beyond the specific fact of this pregnancy and what she's capable of building or not building out of her life. And then the possible, I love the sort of tentative and possible romance at the heart of the movie between this preppy guy who doesn't, superficially at least you would think, maybe doesn't quite get who she is or what she's about and what they might build out of this uh, decision not to have the baby. I thought all of that was handled so uh, beautifully and so gently that it didn't make the movie feel inert to me. It made it feel true. I can see Julia's critique of of inertia, dramatic inertia in this movie, but I might have maybe wanted to place some of that tension elsewhere. I I agree that this movie could have benefited from more tension, more character development, and a little bit more time. I mean, it's a very short movie, 83 minutes long, and it leaves a lot of things, interestingly, kind of delicately in suspension at the end. I don't think they all have to be tied up, but I thought that the the relationship with this preppy guy who gets her accidentally pregnant, played by Jake Lacey, who's really terrific in the part, I think, could have been developed a little bit more. Whether or not he agreed with her decision or was supportive of it, there could have been a little bit more trouble and tension between the two of them. Because without giving away what happens in the course of the movie, the way that she reveals to him that she's pregnant in the end is kind of problematic. It's, 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 it's something that you can imagine someone being very upset about, finding something so important out in the way that she tells him, right? And she's this kind of compulsively confessional stand-up comic who can't sort of help revealing things that she didn't necessarily mean to reveal. And I would have liked if that, just plot-wise, got her in a little bit more trouble that she had to find her way out of. I had this feeling I don't often have at the end of a movie of, is that all there is? I could use another 20 minutes. Yeah. I mean, I thought that a lot of the other characters in the film are a little bit too thinly drawn. She has this uber supportive roommate who seems to have no job or life or boyfriend or other friends who like literally goes to work with the Jenny Slate character and like helps her do her job at work and is always like showing up at the right moment and with a cup of tea or to pull up a blanket or, you know, pat Jenny Slate on the head and support her full-throatedly in her abortion decision. And it's like... It's true that friends can be very supportive, but that she did not seem like a real human person. And I thought similarly, the person who's the father of the child, Max, played by Jake Lacey, I agreed that there were hints of something more rich and a more specific character there. 
Um, but their relationship could have gotten a little bit deeper. I don't know. I thought I liked well, uh, the one. OK, so I, I loved the relationship with their parents because it told you something about why this person is stuck. It, it showed you without telling you that her father is this playful, warm, supportive paternal figure. The parents are split up and have been, it seems like, for quite a while. And the mother is this. I really like this twist. The mother is a super high achiever business school professor who's especially in contrast to the father, a uh, icy cold, and places through what almost seems like calculated passive aggression, huge burdens of expectation on her daughter that have turned her daughter into, the, in some ways, the, the somewhat life-inhibited person that she is. I felt all of that came through without... I, I really did feel as though I was showed it and I wasn't told it. You you see why that might, you know, massively restrict her in the face of this guy who is potentially a prince charming but she keeps batting away and batting away i just thought the whole thing was lovely i mean sometimes a movie can be can be tiny it can be you know it can be etched on a on a on a tiny canvas yeah i love the parent characters and i just want to note that they're played by the always amazing richard kind as her dad and polly draper of 30 something oh i hadn't seen in a long time as her mom i would definitely recommend that people see it i mean it's refreshing to see this particular political take on abortion this apolitically political take and Enough of this movie is very funny and charming that it's just worth seeing for its own sake. But I did have the feeling, similarly, Dana, I felt like it ended a bit soon. And that is part of what contributed to my sense that the movie felt it had made its political point. She had an abortion. The sky didn't fall. And scene. Like, I felt like the movie fundamentally was driven by its sense that it was just going to no, show a no-fuss abortion. And that was the whole point of the film. And there was no fuss. And then it ended. I think that's one of the points of the film. I think another one is actually to create a sort of star vehicle showcase for Jenny Slate. And I think we kind of all agree that it succeeds at that level. In terms of what it's trying to do with its subject matter, I mean, it, I, I guess I was touched by the fact that it is not trying to be about abortion with a capital A. It is actually about an abortion in one specific person's experience. But I think that I may agree with you, Julia, although I didn't really sense it at the time of watching the movie, that it could have benefited from a little bit more tension from someone who didn't support and agree with everything the Jenny Slate character was doing. Okay, so maybe it didn't quite supply all of the um, dramatic octane we would want from a movie, but we all liked it, right? Oh, yeah. I would send people to it for sure. And I can't wait to see what Jenny Slate does next. They should cast her in everything. She's so good. Yeah, she's terrific. I agree. All right. The movie's Obvious Child. It's directed by and written by Gillian Robespierre, uh, starring Jenny Slate. Uh, Go check it out and tell us what you thought of it. All right. Well, now is the moment in our podcast where we talk about our sponsor. Julia, what do we have? We are sponsored this week by Bermuda, the tourist destination, which is not your parents' vacation spot. You should discover Bermuda for yourself. Explore hidden coves in a kayak, try cave swimming under the stalactites, snorkel the legendary coral reefs, or grab a kiteboard and learn to fly. Have you guys ever tried kiteboarding? No. It looks so fun and so terrifying. I'm. Is I, it that a kite is pulling you on skis through water? You have kind of like an arch-shaped kite and your feet are on basically like a surfboard. It's like a cross between surfing and windsurfing, but the sail is not actually attached to the board. It looks amazing. People do all these crazy athletic jumps and stuff. Um, And then finally, of course, a major draw. You can pull up to a pink sand beach and toast the sunset with a dark and stormy cocktail. No matter what kind of vacation you crave, you'll find it on an island of dramatic beauty and charming villages. Bermuda has been waiting for you. We should mention that after the last time we had a Bermuda ad placement on the show, we actually had a Bermudan listener write in or tweet in to me saying, Bermuda is great and you guys should come and you should do a live show in Bermuda. So we're open to it. Yeah, man. I would I would 100% do a live on show. On the pink sand. Yeah. 
All right, well, moving on. Readers of Margaret Talbot's engaging New Yorker profile of the YA novelist John Green, he who wrote the novel The Fault in Our Stars, whose movie adaptation is now conquering the box office, may have found their attention snagged on the following sentence, as, as I did. Uh, Margaret Talbot writes, the stripped-down cover also meant that adults could read it on the subway without embarrassment. She goes on to say, adults have become big consumers of YA fiction, and the numbers back this up. It turns out it's quite a big trend. A whopping 28% of all YA sales uh, are to readers between the ages of 30 and 44. So someone had to do it, and she did. The critic Ruth Graham threw down the gauntlet in Slate saying, adults should feel embarrassed about reading literature written for children. Julia, I think when we were deciding to do this topic, you said that you read YA fiction. I'm curious if you do, what you read uh, from among it, and um, and are you embarrassed? I'm not embarrassed, and I found this article published in Slate thoroughly unpersuasive. I thought it was it was not a convincing case that anyone should be ashamed of reading adult fiction. I, we can get into what specifically I've read in a bit, but I just want to parse her, her argument a little bit. She argued in Slate primarily that young adult fiction offers the reader pleasure instead of ambiguity and moral complexity and some of the other pleasures that are more traditionally associated with fiction written for adults. I think it's very apt to suggest that there's different kinds of reading that one can do as a reader and that sometimes one goes to literature for complexity, moral ambiguity, the mystery of the human character, the mystery of what to do with your life and how to feel about it. Obviously, this is, these are the areas where fiction reigns supreme at helping humans to understand the human experience. But to argue point blank that a fiction written for adults is good at that sort of thing and that fiction written for young people is bad is a very broad stroke that strikes me as completely inaccurate. I mean, think about all the direct written for adults. Dan Brown and The Da Vinci Code are just as shittily written and popular as the Twilight novels. On the other hand, then you can point to a series like um, Philip Pullman's uh, The Amber Spyglass trilogy, which is an incredibly sophisticated work of philosophy that happens to also be a young adult fantasy series. It's also beautifully written and totally interesting. I think somewhere in between you find Harry Potter, which is a bit more conventional and a bit more of a pleasure delivery vehicle device. On the other hand, those books get kind of complicated and dark. If you read all the way through to the seven, there's death and torment and the nature of evil. I mean, a lot of stuff gets packed into those. So it just seemed like a blanket assignation of values to adult fiction and fiction for kids that seemed totally wrong. Mm-hmm. Dana, what about you? Did this argument have any traction with you at all? Well, you know, I followed this argument much more closely than I usually follow I don't know, dust-ups on Twitter about who should read what. I mean, this is exactly the kind of thing that usually I ignore because I feel like that that's not a worthwhile debate. And yet I just felt like the the things that people were bringing to this conversation were so interesting. I couldn't stop reading and thinking about it. I think everything in me seems like it would have been aligned to agree with Ruth Graham. I, I like her as a critic. I don't read a lot of young adult fiction myself. I'm, you know, a literature PhD. But yet I found myself viscerally turned off by her argument just because of the shame factor, because of the 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 high degree of importance that she gave to the to the feeling of shame and embarrassment about what you read so that even though you know the people that were popping up saying how dare you i'm going to read whatever i want may have been in fact aligning themselves with 
literature that I consider less interesting, I completely agreed with them. I, and, and I agreed with the tweet of Laura Miller's, the salon book critic, who said something about people should be ashamed of telling other people to be ashamed of what they read. Also, I think it's a complete, there are several straw men at work here. One of the straw men is that YA literature is this thing that is distinct from adult literature as opposed to a marketing category that's been greatly pumped up in the last few years. I know people who have taken book proposals to agents and been told, you should try to sell this as YA because that's where the money is right now, right? I mean, that line is constantly changing and it's changing for reasons that have nothing to do with the content of the books that have everything to do with marketing and publishing and what's selling and what's not. The other straw man Ruth Graham is arguing against is this idealized reader in her mind who only reads YA fiction, doesn't read anything else, and kind of considers that the be-all and end-all of their identity. I think very few readers, adult readers, probably fit that profile. Mm -hmm. I think we can all agree that uh, an intelligent reader of any stripe is capable of looking through a genre label or a marketing category through to the inherent qualities of a piece of writing. So it doesn't matter that The Catcher in the Rye is about a young adolescent. It's not exclusively for young adolescents. It's a work of literature on its own. It's similarly, The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn or or Dana, one of our favorite books, I Capture the Castle by Dodie Smith, um, which is now probably discovering a second life as a YA book, um, more or less disappearing, especially in this country for several decades. Um, so I think we can all agree that, and, and, and as Julia points out on the flip side, there are plenty of books that are marketed exclusively to adults that are uh, shallow, terribly written flattering of all the worst tendencies of, of readers. Nonetheless, I think, and I think Ruth Graham's a terrific critic, and I do think something interesting is going on here, so I want to try to break it down a little bit. It seems to me the cranky apocalyptic argument comes in two related versions. The first is a literary panic, right, which is the taste for serious writing is drying up or being replaced by a taste for the pseudo-literate, the immature, or the easy. And then the second is what A.O. Scott has called the cultural devaluation of maturity, that increasingly adults are assuming worldviews appropriate to teenagers as a way of avoiding complexity and ambiguity that life, forget literature as a category, life itself presses upon human beings. And when they can't cope with it or aren't given by the media or whatever, their parents or the schooling system, the equipment to deal with it, they'll revert to these safe aesthetic cocoons like YA fiction. Do I believe either one of those arguments? I actually think it's even more complicated than that. What I would say is that certain kinds of normative ideals of maturity require that people give up a part of their personality as they supposedly, quote unquote, grow up. And those very parts of their personality are the, you know, questioning, the unformed, the super sensitive that we associate with adolescence now, in part because we don't have a way of carrying that degree of searchingness into our adult self, uh, in part because I think we're in a our pop culture is degradingly cynical about that uh, part of our personality. And let's face it, most of us in the adult world in, in a capitalistic uh, structure, you know, have to take on a bureaucratic self or a productive self that isn't allowed to think about ultimate ends. So it makes perfect sense to me that in some ways the best part of us is attracted to literature that is about young people who have yet to be absorbed into either that cynicism or that bureaucratic grayness. So in some sense, I'm overwhelmingly heartened by the trend to read these kinds of books. On the other hand, I become worried because the flip side of that is that once people do become a settled and mature self, they're very, very, very hard to market to. And I do think A.O. Scott is right to say that there's a general tendency in the culture to keep people unformed or 
unsure, I mean really insecure about who they are as long as possible in order to keep that that demographic marketing category that when I was a kid was called 18 to 34. I mean, you aged out of it at 34. And as I age, literally that category follows me. Then it was 18 to 49. You could market certain things to people up to the age of 49, after which it was just simply impossible. They just weren't motile enough or whatever, um, you know, to get them to buy the shit that you wanted to sell them. I swear to God, that category is going to follow me to the grave. And I don't want it to. So I see both sides of this in some sense. Yeah, when A.O. Scott, I think that was a tweet about this exact topic, the, the, the critical devaluation of maturity. I mean, I, I completely agree with that phrase. I see that happening all the time in movies that I write about. You know, I think that the whole, for example, Judd Apatow comedy movement, as much as I may like some of those movies and laugh at them, is to some degree about the eternal extension of adolescence. I think that actually is a problem in American culture, which is another reason that I'm surprised that I, I sort of could get no traction whatsoever in that in that Ruth Graham polemic against Mm -hmm. Yeah, but I think you're talking about two different things here, Steve, and that there's there's ambiguity in this too, right? So on the one hand, to be connected with your inner searcher self, your inquisitive self, your observational self, your self who is constantly appraising your relationship to the world around you, that sort of feels like a very teenage thing to do, a very alive thing to do, a very almost transcendentalist, Emersonian, Thoreauian way to live, right? Um, Which maybe we think of as a good thing. I'm more inclined to believe that side of the argument than the notion that that just makes us, um, you know, brand shiftable prey for marketers. Like, I think it's exciting to connect mentally with that time in life if you're not there anymore. And I also think I've been thinking about this just reading my kids like board books for the last year and a half. There is darkness for children at all age levels. I mean, I was even just reading um, Curious George this morning, which is like a weird, fucked up colonialist book that starts with like a monkey getting robbed from his home and feeling sad about it, but then also intrepid about the adventures ahead of him. And, you know, pluckily he chases balloons or whatever. But like children are confronted with darkness, ambiguity and the scariness of life in, in all sorts of literature, all forms of literature at various ages. And I think if you can find literature of all sorts, whether it's a board book or a YA novel or a fantasy series or a detective novel or an actual piece of proper literary fiction put out by Knopf and anointed by the right people, you should embrace that wherever you can find it. And I also don't think it makes you a bad person or a lesser reader to sometimes pull up a mystery novel or read something that isn't going to subvert your notion of how you fit into the world. It's just like a good yarn. I think that's okay. Well done, group. All right. The, uh, the essay is in Slate.com. Uh, it's by Ruth Graham. It's called Against YA. Read whatever you want, but you should feel embarrassed when you're reading what was written for children. Oh, <laughs> I won't. I shan't. <laughs> Anyone who uses shan't that beautifully and authoritatively should be embarrassed about nothing. All right. Well, now is the moment in our podcast where we talk about our other sponsor. Dana, what do we have? This week, we are sponsored by our beloved Audible.com, the leading provider of premium digital spoken audio information and entertainment. They have more than 150,000 great audiobook titles. You can play them on any device, including whatever you're hearing us on now. And as you know, if you've been listening to the GabFest, we are compiling a Culture GabFest bucket list, which is books on Audible that you must listen to or read before you die in order to be respected by Stephen Metcalf. So what do we have this week, Steve? All right, well, I'm going I'm I'm to punt this right over to Julia. Julia, what do you think? Pullman? Yeah, Philip Pullman wrote a series of books that's referred to as the His Dark Materials Trilogy. I think the first one is called The Golden Compass. Um, And they are just some of the most wonderful books I've read in the last 15 years. 
they have an intrepid female heroine who's a bit of a tomboy and who's wise beyond her years. I mean, they, they have some of the tropes of YA. But uh, the world that she inhabits and the decisions she must make in the course of the trilogy are fascinating, richly textured, and intellectually and philosophically interesting, I think. Uh, and I would highly recommend the series if you if you haven't read it. It's really a must. And as much as I love Harry Potter, I think, and as much as I love Harry Potter, I think these books are darker and richer and even more interesting and complex than those. So again, it's the His Dark Materials trilogy, and it's available on Audible, actually narrated by Philip Pullman himself with a whole host of interesting actors in the different parts. Excellent. Absolutely. Yeah, I've read little bits of it to my um, daughter and haven't been able to go back and read the whole thing. But what I've read is just amazing. Well, this is also the book so good that Dan Quayle named his eldest child after the heroine. So he's always talking on the parenting podcast, if you guys are listening to it, about his daughter Lyra. And Lyra is the name of the heroine. All right. Your membership will also include a free subscription to either the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal Daily Audio Digest. So sign up at audiblepodcast.com slash culturefest. And get yourself a free audiobook. All right, moving on. Home economics classes in which you learn to sew a button and boil an egg used to be uh, a staple of high school and college curricula. Back in the dark ages known as the 1970s, the second wave feminists came in and killed off home ec for being a means of yoking women to demeaning work and thereby second class status in the industrial economy seems perfectly reasonable. However, Rebecca Traster argues in The New Republic that we are now a post industrial economy and home economics may be one means of making domestic work, cooking, cleaning, raising kids, managing a household, more gender neutral. Julia, it seems to me that this is, a, at least on its face, a pretty plausible argument. What did you make of it? Yeah, I mean, I, so I grew up in the way post-home ec era. It wasn't that there were like home ec classes that weren't mandatory that I was taking. It was that I home ec appeared only in like young adult fiction from the 70s that I was still reading in the 80s. And I remember always being kind of jealous, like home ec sounded kind of cool and fun and you like made potholders or something. I don't know. It, it was like elusive, a, a, a near miss in my past. Like it felt like I, I could have had home ec if only. This article seemed plausible for the first half of it and then went on to make a series of wild claims about what re reintroducing home economics could do for the American populace, its beleaguered men. I think it ends up by arguing that it will teach the beleaguered young men of America how to like love and feel again. <laughs> that seemed somewhat beyond the ken of, of home economics as I understood it from reading Judy Bloom. But um, I, in general, I think there's a tension in American education from kindergarten through professional school between focusing on ideas and cultivating the mind and focusing on practical skills, right? I mean, you hear this, like, architects graduate from architecture school, but they don't actually learn how to design a building till they apprentice with a real architecture shop afterwards. Lawyers graduate from law school, and then they have to take the whole summer after law school cramming for the bar, which is what actually introduces them to the statutes of the land that they will have to finally parse in their careers as lawyers. Uh, and to me, the home economics sort of falls into the same category. There's a set of life skills, how to you know, manage a budget, sure, how to boil an egg, that depending on what household you come from, you might not pick up, that it seems like it would be useful if, if primary and secondary education could impart. And I think we can take as a given that it would be imparted to, in modern times in a gender-neutral way and might be useful, might be an interesting break in the routine of the day for students. It seemed like a worthy suggestion to me. I mean, I think Rebecca Traster is exactly right that education in general should have more focus on life skills. I think there should be a college class on managing your life, a class on paying bills and 
paying your rent and dealing with all kinds of bureaucracies, you know, the stuff that your parents do when you're a kid and then you find yourself out in the world and don't know how to do it. But there are so many things that should be offered in schools. I mean, I think reading this piece, I mainly just felt the sort of sadness about this pie-in-the-sky vision of education. Of course, we should have more opportunities to do things like home ec in schools. We should also have recess and art, right, and, mm-hmm. and anything except test prep for some sort of standardized test. But it just it, it didn't seem like there was a very practical proposition being laid down. Right. Well, I okay, so I, I had mixed feelings about the article. On the one hand, I think that one of the central points that she makes cannot be made often enough that an ideological framework was shattered in the, in the 1970s by which, you know, men automatically enter the sphere of serious breadwinning and women automatically become homemakers. Um, so all hail the first and second wave feminists for doing that. Nonetheless, a social practice persists that even as women graduate from college in greater numbers than men and their breadwinning statistics catch up to men's uh, breadwinning statistics, the housework is still sloughed off on women. This is this is what the sociologist Arlie Hochschild has called the second shift. Uh, it's a very real phenomenon. It's getting a lot of press. It needs to get more press. So uh, I was happy to see that it was in this article, reiterated in this uh, article from a new point of view. I think you still still have to take into consideration the instability of inputs and outputs when you're dealing with adolescents. Presumably you're talking about teaching this to adolescents or tweens or slightly post-adolescent kids. You're basically teaching it to, you know, the YA age group um, at some point. And there is there is a kind of volatility between inputs and outputs. And if you don't call it the right thing and present it the right way, you're going to massively reinforce the very gender identities that you're looking to transcend or at least soften. Uh, so I would, first of all, I wouldn't call it home ec. Second of all, I would, I would call it something, I mean, Every... Extreme life skills <laughs> with a Z. What's wrong with home ec? Just that it's old sounding? It's just it's as creaky and old as you and I are, Dana. And it's just going to make... But also, I, I do think it's a relic of a super gendered uh, past. And so to the extent that anyone has any association with it, it's going to be a, a negative one. And it's going to, for right or wrong, it's going to hit the ears of certain boys as as feminizing uh, and and vaguely Maoist because of that, like top down and Maoist. So what's your euphemistic call, substitute? Call it life hacking or, I mean, you know, give it some ridiculous. Best roommate ever, bro. You know, bro. Kitchen it, surfing. I would bro it up. I would bro <laughs> it up in some way that, that isn't completely freaking inane. Anyway, so bro up the name a little bit. But then, Julia, I think I think you're onto something when you say that we're at an interesting crisis point in the history of American education, especially public education, which is, you know, post-World War II, we invested nobly uh, in the idea that every child has a full potential, that that it is their American patrimony to try to achieve. And that's a wonderful ideal. We also tried to hide from ourselves that those are wildly disparate in many cases. And at a certain point in the educational trajectory of a kid, you have something like, you always keep it provisional, but something like a sense of what that's going to be. And in denial of that fact, we've de-stressed uh, vocational education, practical education, and we try to treat everyone more or less the same, and then we rush in uh, super sophisticated education or hot, you know really demanding education at the later stages at university and especially at the postgraduate level in this country, and then shunt people off on you know on shop and home ec uh, in this vaguely humiliating way. If teach, teaching these as universal life skills seems to me um, actually a kind of a dignified way of rectifying that. 
Yeah, and I like I like your notion of calling it life hacking, which just feels sort of modern and feels accurate. There was actually a really interesting editorial in the Huffington Post that suggested that classes like this might be particularly useful around food because people are eating so much packaged food, and packaged food tends to be so much less healthy than preparing food for yourselves. And, you know, in general, I think figuring out how to cook and, like, you know, nurture yourself and, like, not die seems like part of the original home ec mission, but a class that sort of taught you the basics of nutrition along with some other life skills seems totally useful. I still, of all the facts I learned in all my, whatever, 17-odd years of education, one of them was imparted to me by Mr. Keith Hills Pallant, who was my math teacher. I think what it maybe was like Algebra 1 or something like that, but we were learning about exponents. And so we learned about compound interest. And he said in that class, the minute that you have the opportunity to start saving for your retirement, do. And he did like, you know, 10 minutes of if you put in 1,000 here, you get X by the time you're 60. And if you wait 10 years, you get Y. And it just stayed with me, you know, like just having someone present it as this is not just a series of, of numerals and equations on a board. What we're studying applies to how you will go on to manage your life as a you know person in the world. That really stuck with me. And I think we could stand to connect education all sorts of education with more useful life skills. So can I ask you guys, if you were going to take a, a, a remedial home at class now, what is the thing that you as a grown-up don't know how to do in your home that you wish you knew how to do in your home? I don't know if this would count as a skill that would be taught in home ec, but manage papers and file and keep things organized. If someone would teach me to do that, I would go back to remedial school to learn it, <laughs> to not have towering heaps of unidentified papers everywhere. <laughs> I would like to know some more light electronics. I would say one of my proudest achievements of the last five years was rewiring a lamp based off of YouTube videos and a few phone calls to my dad. Um, That's more like shop class. I guess, but it's like handiness, general life handiness. Like I would lump these things together and somehow my shop class education stopped before it got electronic. And so I'm always a little bit terrified when wires get involved. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'll give you mine. Mine is, I live in a, you know, freestanding house in the middle of the country that's placing all kinds of demands on me all the time, cleaning my gutters and do I detach my garden hoses when I'm not using them? When do I bring them in at the end of the season? I mean, it, the house is this living thing that if it's not tended to, uh, really just goes to shit in, in surprising and sort of sh somewhat shocking ways. Uh, so I'd love to be life hacked, you know, from um, from head to toe in this regard. Just how a house works and how you keep it functioning. Yeah. All right. Well, maybe we'll start an adult ed class where we have these skills imparted to us by an unnamed teacher. Teacher, if you want to arise, that's you right. You. Yeah. How do you find the master who knows all this stuff and knows YouTube. how to impart it? YouTube. All right. Well, the article in The New Republic was called Feminists Killed Home Ec. Now they should bring it back for boys and girls. It's by Rebecca Traster. Check it out. All right. Well, now is the moment in our podcast where we endorse. Dana, what do you got? This is the second week in a row that I'm going to endorse something that was on Slate. So after this, I promise to go non-Slate endorsements for a few weeks. But it's not my fault that the site has had so much good content lately. So this week, I'm going to endorse a long-reported piece by Rachel Nuver about dollhouse dioramas. You saw this, right, Julia? Yeah. It's fantastic. This is one of the best things I've seen on Slate in a while. So it's the story of this woman named Frances Glessner Lee, who in the 
40s and 50s, was a homemaker, a frustrated homemaker who was obsessed with forensic science and and legal questions and crime, and who eventually sort of clawed her way without really any education in this area into being the, one of the foremost experts on forensic science and really changed the practice of forensic science by making these dollhouse dioramas of crime scenes that were uncannily accurate. And there's also a great slideshow of these dollhouse dioramas. So they would be miniatures of the place where some crime had occurred with every detail perfectly in place, the body exactly where it was. She would age the fixtures so that they actually looked like, you know, a house that was of, of that age. And uh, they're really beautiful to look at. And it's a, a fascinating story about both about, you know, feminism and about this woman's sort of rise to prominence in this emerging field. And also, if you are interested in miniatures and, you know, sort of recreations or crime scenes, <laughs> it's fantastic on that level, too. So just take a look at it for yourself and you'll see what I mean. It's called Murder in Miniature. It's by Rachel Neuer and it's on Slate. Cool. Um, all right, Julia, what do you got? So we did not talk, one thing we did not talk about when we discussed Obvious Child is the name. The name of the movie is drawn from a Paul Simon song from the album Rhythm of the Saints. And somewhat amusingly, the one-night stand scene, which is very flirtatious and involves a lot of frantic, half-naked dancing, is scored to this wonderful Paul Simon song. So my endorsement for this week is the semi-forgotten Paul Simon album, Rhythm of the Saints. I think it was the album that came out after Graceland. So the album after the album that put him at cocktail parties across the land and made him like the soundtrack of liberal America. But uh, similar to Graceland in that it uses a lot of African drumming and stuff, right? Yeah, if you've got problems with Paul Simon's cultural appropriations, you'll probably have problems with this album too, but they just sound so good. Um, I, 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 can't, I can't toss out that baby with that bathwater. I, I love just, Paul <laughs> Simon's cultural appropriations. Come on, that is great music. I actually wrote something in my review of Obvious Child about the impossibility or unlikelihood, I thought, that two 20-somethings would, on their very first date as they're about to hook up dance to a Paul Simon song that's 25 years old. And a bunch of millennials tweeted at me saying, we love Paul Simon. Stop saying the millennials don't love Paul Simon. So I guess their parents all had them listen to Rhythm well, of the Saints. I think that makes sense. I mean, it, I think it's the album that kind of came into our house after Graceland and I listened to it growing up. And, you know, it wasn't like quite as catchy. It didn't catch on in quite the same massive way that Graceland did. Um there was no obvious, like, You Can Call Me Al follow-up song. But there are incredible songs on that album. It is so worth putting back into your rotation. It, it's that particular song it was fun to encounter again. But um, a bunch of the songs on that album are truly stellar. So uh, Paul Simon, Rhythm of the Saints. Do it. Yeah, I'd never heard that song. I loved it. Um, all right. Well, I, this week I'm going to endorse two bo- related books. The, um, the first is simply the biography of, I think it's become the standard biography of Van Gogh. Uh, it's by Stephen, I'll probably mispronounce his name, Nefe and Gregory White Smith. Uh, I haven't finished it, but I, I was only I was vaguely familiar with all of the things that all of us know about Van Gogh. He sold only one painting in his life. He was kind of considered an oddity. He didn't really fit in anywhere he was. Uh, he was mentally afflicted in ways that have never been definitively diagnosed. He had a friendship with Paul Gauguin. Uh, Dear. Uh, And he sliced off his ear. I I didn't know anything more. I have to tell you, even though it's a massive book, even though I'm only about 20 to 30 percent of the way through it, it's utterly fascinating to read. I mean, he's at the I mean, didn't he he only lived until he was in his at the latest, his late, late 30s, I believe. He died in his late 30s, possibly early 40s. But I think it was more his late 30s. He's 24 years old. He hasn't picked up a paintbrush yet. I mean, he's so lost. He's so the archetype of the annoying 
self-centered, melancholic young man who believes that he's uniquely connected to the universe. Except in this case, he's right. He's Van Gogh. I know how it ends. You paint the most beautiful canvases that anyone ever created. The most, some of the most unique and beautiful artworks will flow from your hand. Pick up the brush. I mean, it's so fucking moving because he's so close to being not only a non-entity, but the annoying twerp that everyone in his large Dutch family mistakes him to be, except for Theo, of course, with whom he develops this beautiful sibling relationship. His, his brother, and correspondence. Right. And Unbelievable correspondence. correspondence. Well, as the biographers rightly say, one of the truly great documents of the human experience. I mean, so anyway, and of course you know how it really, really ends, which it turns it turns out that the portrait of Dr. Gachet, which Van Gogh paints, I believe, in the week before he dies, um, uh, becomes the single most valuable object ever cre- by market standards ever created by a human hand uh, in 1990 when it sold for 82.5 million. So part of the Van Gogh story is this afterlife, right, of total vindication at the hands of both critics, audiences, and of course financial mar- art, mar- the art market. Um, that story is beautifully told by a woman named Cynthia Saltzman in a book called The Portrait of Dr. Gachet, the story of a Van Gogh masterpiece, Money, Politics, Collectors, Greed, and Loss, which basically tells the entire afterlife of Van Gogh via this painting, uh, uh, this portrait of Dr. Gachet, and how it falls into various hands. It's bought for, you know, pennies, basically, uh, several times over. It ends up, um, and, and, and of course, it's also the story of the gathering strength of Van Gogh's reputation over time, which is itself a remarkable story, how he went from, you know, and it wasn't quick. 20 years out, you, you know, you could have bought Van Gogh's collected works for pocket change as many as 10, 15, 20 years after he died. It was really beginning in the early 20th century. And even then, they were not uh, highly, uh, very highly prized. It ended up in the possession of Goebbels. I mean, the whole the whole story of the painting is really, truly remarkable. And it is really the second biography of Vincent Van Gogh, his posthumous biography. Um, and so the two taken together are, are remarkable. I highly recommend it. Those sound amazing. Thank you, Dana. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Julia. It's nice to have you back, Steve. It's very good to be back. Steve, before you uh, roll into those closing credits, which I'm sure you remember by heart, can I make an announcement? Announce away. What do you got? It's the summertime, which means we're all wearing white, and it's time for Summer Strut. This is our annual tradition where we lament the sad, withering, desolate spaces of our iPhones and iPods. And demand that readers give us songs to strut by. We need songs to put into our ears while we strut around the beach, the city. Maybe we're hiking the Appalachian Trail. I don't know what. But we are all over the place. And we are going to rock this summer and rule it into the ground. Uh, And we're going to do that to the soundtrack provided by you. So please, if you have a great summer tune, can be contemporaneous, can be old, can be a rediscovery, Try not to make it too obvious. Please recommend it on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. Uh, Our intern, Anna, will post a post requesting your submissions, and please post a response there, and then she will collate them for us into a gigantic Spotify playlist, and we will have a segment sometime soon where we strut it up. Choose our favorites. Exactly. I love it. All right. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. Our producer is Ann Hepperman. Our intern is Anna Schechtman. The executive producer of Slate Podcasts is Andy Bowers. And our Twitter feed is Slate Cult Fest. 
for Dana Stevens and Julia Turner. I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thanks so much for joining us, and we'll, we'll see you next week. Well, I'm accustomed to a smooth ride. Oh, maybe I'm a dog who's lost his pride. I don't expect to be treated like a fool no more. I don't expect to sleep through the night. So people say lies, 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 but I say why? Why deny the obvious child? Why deny the obvious child? And in remembering a road sign, I'm remembering a girl when I was young. And we said these songs are true, these days are ours, these tears are free. The cross is in the ballpark, and the cross is in the ballpark.